This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, and welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Once again, I'm pleased to bring you an in-depth discussion with authors of recent cutting-edge scholarship related to military history. Now, today we're going to revisit an interview format we last saw in March 2014, which is going to be the live in-person interview with the two principals behind a co-authored work. In this particular case, I'm in a conference room at Georgian Court University in Lakewood, New Jersey, with Jeffrey Sammons and John Morrow, Jr., the creators of Harlem's Rattlers and the Great War, the Undaunted 369th Regiment, and the African-American Quest for Equality, published earlier this year by the University Press of Kansas. Now, before we even start discussing the book itself, it's worth noting um, the relationship between the two authors. John H. Morrow is, is likely a familiar name to some of our audience as he comes to this project with an established record as a military historian. A well-established expert in the history of air power in the First World War, John is also the author of the very well-received survey text, The Great War in Imperial History. His co-author, Jeffrey Sammons, may be less familiar to some of our listeners, as Harlem Rattlers is his first foray into military history. An established historian of the internexes of race and sport in American culture, he brings his considerable analytical and writing skills to bear with great effect in Harlem's Rattlers. Well, with that all said, John, Jeff, welcome to New Books in Military History. Thank you, Bobby, for having us. Pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, can I ask how you guys came together to work on this? Well, let's start with how we came together. <laughs> uh, John and I, I think, met at probably an American Historical Association meeting sometime in the 80s. It's a very long time right. ago. We've known right. each other for quite a long mm-hmm. time, and there's an interesting Rutgers connection that we should mention. My father was a Phi Beta Kappa Rutgers graduate of the class of 1931, Mm-hmm. And Jeff is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the Rutgers University, class of 1971. <laughs> so I used to kid Jeff and say, maybe he was my brother, but I didn't know about it. <laughs> uh, so there's that connection, and we get along very well personally. So That's very evident, sure, yeah. So how did we collaborate on this book? Right. Uh, I must be honest, it wasn't that the, the book wasn't my idea, uh, and it wasn't John's. Um, someone approached me, uh, a so-called packager or producer, mm-hmm. uh, and said, uh, you know, I want you to consider uh, writing a book 
369th Regiment, uh, and there's a treasure trove of, of documents and mm-hmm. uh, artifacts at the armory that will be available to you. Uh, and there was some relationship that was established with the um, uh, head of the 369th Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I said, yes, I'll do it. And I said, but I think in order to do this book right, first of all, it needs someone who is familiar with military history and all its sort of uh, aspects. Right. Uh, and even more, someone uh, who does European uh, <laughs> military history right. who happens to be fluent in French and German. And I say, I don't know of anybody else who fits that category, uh, but uh, John Morrow, and I'd like to enlist John to be a co-author of the project. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, John had been doing uh, work on uh, blacks in World War I more generally, right. uh, and had exploited the French archives, uh, and no other book on the subject of the 369th has done that. Right. So that alone, and there are many other ways in which our book is distinguished from others, but that distinguishes right. it in, in, a, in, a, in a way that uh, um, is incredibly important. John, you want to add her? Yeah, when um, Jeff approached me uh, about co-authoring the book, um, I was in the process of starting. I'd done about two or three chapters on a book on the Second World War mm-hmm. and the same global approach that I used uh, in the Great War and Imperial History. Mm-hmm. But... My great-uncle fought in the First World War in the 92nd Division and was awarded uh, Distinguished Service Cross in the Aquatic Air. Goodness. And um, I thought to myself, because he served in the much maligned 368th Regiment, right. um, I'd always been interested in writing something in African-American history, and when Jeff called me, it was, it was perfect timing. I thought, I will put this World War II book aside because my father's family came from North Jersey, from Hackensack, mm-hmm. right across the bridge from New York, and a number of young men from Hackensack joined the 369th, mm-hmm. uh, some of whom did not return mm-hmm. at the end of the war. So uh, when he caught me, I thought, well, Jeff will do the dirty work. <laughs> He'll work in the American archives, and I actually was going to West Point to teach, and Turned out there's a marvelous set of documents from John Castles, Wesley Castles, who was patents on patent staff in World War II and was in patents tank force in World War I, but started his service in the 369. Oh, interesting. So okay. West Point had his records. And then I went to Paris uh, to mm-hmm. Vincennes to do the French archives, and they were Such open a- to me. Such a sacrifice oh, to make. No, it was, it's very difficult to work in Paris. There's so many distractions. <laughs> and then after that, um, I went out and trekked the battlefields. And then, much to my surprise, after I've trekked all these battlefields, it turns out that Jeff has come to France to do his own battlefield treks. And I'm trying, I said afterwards, oh, why didn't you tell me you were coming? He said, oh, I get an interpreter, and I, I get the... So he, he did his own work as well. Uh, and so, cemeteries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but one of the things that uh, uh, 
resulted from that uh, uh, French uh, foray uh, was actually locating a plaque mm-hmm. to the 369th uh, in Hartmann's Villerskopf in the Vosch, uh yeah. or Vielle Armand, Old uh-huh. Armand. And uh, I learned about that uh, from, I think it was Outwater, who mm-hmm. wrote yep. to, to Little right. upon the publication of yeah. Little's book, and said, "You won't believe what I found. Right. There's a plaque to us. We don't deserve it, but it's but it's but the French have put it there in honor of our service yeah. uh, on Hartmann's Villerskopf. Yeah, and that uh, occurred at the end of the war after yeah. a major battle, and so he basically discovered it and he took the photograph, of which it. is in the book. Yes, which is in the book. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads to a, to a digression or a distraction before we get into the main body of the interview because I was just in France." this past summer, and I made a point of going to Beanerville and looking all through the area and finding virtually no representation of the, any of the, the African Americans, not just the 369th, but also the 92nd Division yep. there. That's what's fascinating about it, because um, Beanerville, the original attack at Beanerville, uh, which did not go well mm-hmm. with the 368th, in which two of the Regiments, battalions failed to take their um, goal, mm-hmm. but the third battalion of the regiment responded brilliantly, stepped yes. in and seized um, the target. The commanders of the 92nd mm-hmm. used that failure by the two mm-hmm. battalions to characterize the entire division for the whole war, which was their least successful um, mm-hmm. episode during the war, and ignored the more successful, and in some respects more successful than other divisions around them, mm-hmm. uh, more successful attacks that occurred in, in November yes. uh, at the end of the war. So uh, that uh, disastrous experience by two battalions mm-hmm. was extrapolated by the southern white officers right. of the 92nd Division to characterize all American soldiers mm-hmm. in the First World War, African American soldiers right. in the First World War, and ignored our men and all the other men who had fought in the French army and been successful as well as the rest well, of the 92nd Division. That's the foundation of the 1925 War College right. Report. Now, there are monuments to the 371st and 372nd that I don't think are terribly far from Seychelles, somewhere in the that's right. Sargon, mm-hmm. right? They're right north of the right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, okay. then, and, and then there's that, that what I call the monument to hypocrisy uh, in Saint-Pi, is that right, John? Mm-hmm. Uh, in which there, the 93rd Division is on this huge memorial mm-hmm. uh, and uh, m- making it seem as though it was somehow integrated yes. with the American forces uh, in, the, in the war. Mm-hmm. And I think the 42nd Division is also on that same... That's right. <laughs> no, Since they rejected right. our fellows right. at the beginning. But you know, if you, you were saying you went to Benarville, and mm-hmm. I've been to Benarville, there is utterly... No evidence there of mm-hmm. what happened, but if you drive a few miles up the road into the forest, you'll see where the lost battalion disappeared yes. into the army. Oh, well, that is yeah. there. That's yeah. represented That's, now, twice. Now, the monuments to the 371st and 372nd were actually funded by the men and the officers themselves. Okay. So it wasn't an American 
benefactor, yeah. like in the case of the lost battalion. So, but that's a distraction, digression. Before we we can pursue the the main body of the interview, um, I want to ask you talking about historiography and the book. You know, up until recently, there hasn't been very much fair treatment or quality treatment of African Americans in the First World War. I mean, fortunately, in recent years, people like Chad Williams, Adrian Lenz Smith, I'll even classify Richard Slotkin, have done a better job of bringing to light a more realistic appraisal of the sacrifices and struggles the black soldiers faced, you know, not only in combat, but also in interacting within the American Expeditionary Force. That said, there is a lot of material on the 369th Regiment. How does your book fit in with that? I mean, how, how does your book address that? Well, one of the things I think the books that you mentioned, perhaps with the exception of, of, of Slotkin, but maybe even his as well, really tell the story of blacks through war, yes. but not of war. Yes. So our book does both in ways that no other book does. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have all the operational stuff and, uh, you know, the European theater uh, in ways that these other books just uh, mm-hmm. uh, don't. Also, I would note that from the very beginning, um, Jeff wrote the pre-war um, and the post-war. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the wartime primarily, although there's overlap. In that. But in Jeff's approach to the pre-war and the post-war history of the regiment, what he does is to situate it very well within both the political scene in mm-hmm. New York, but as well the national scene in Washington. Yes, And it's those pre-war and then the post-war histories of the efforts of the regiment to get a black commander, and once mm-hmm. when he finally gets Benjamin O. Davis Sr., mm-hmm. then it's no longer uh, an infantry uh, right. unit. It's changed from being an infantry unit. So that what you see is this overarching history, um, which most of the stories don't tell. They just really concentrate on the regiment right. in the war. Um, but it's the prehistory and setting it, uh, the regiment and mm-hmm. its formation in the historical context. Right. And then in the war, um, we were able to do the same in terms of what the situation looked like. Uh, we know when there are instances where they encounter Moroccan infantry, mm-hmm. uh, what some of the attitudes are towards Senegalese infantry, but other mm-hmm. African uh, soldiers both of color and then of uh, the case of the Moroccans, Muslim soldiers. Mm-hmm. But we're able to see as well the contrast between the treatment of the 369th and the French army mm-hmm. and the treatment of the 92nd Division in the AEF. Mm-hmm. And what you come to realize blatantly is that if you had to fight and die for a unit in that war, mm-hmm. it was better to be an American soldier in the black regiments that served in the French army than it was to be an African-American mm-hmm. soldier in the AEF. In fact, yeah. no other book on the 369th goes beyond uh, the, the, the war, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unit is disbanded after the war. Yeah. There is no 369 right. until 1922 when it's recommissioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and virtually every black officer who had been 
in this 15th New York Guard, uh, which was to become the 369th, uh, again, was removed. Uh, and Arthur Little was the uh, uh, commander of that, of that new uh, uh, 369th. The other thing that we do, John, that no one else does, is to discuss the sort of uh, internecine warfare between the white officers sure. of, 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 of the regiment uh, and the so-called club, of which John mm-hmm. Wesley Castles and Hamilton Fish uh, are members, and their rather tense, uh, if not contemptuous, relationship uh, with... Uh, William Hayward right. was the white commander. Right. I was going to say, in most of the other uh, accounts of the regiment that I've read, the focus is on Hamilton Fish as the, the, the impromptu or de facto leader of the regiment, overlooking Hayward almost entirely and not really accounting for that, that interesting fighting that you refer to. Yeah. One of the interesting aspects of it, and uh, it's also part of our attempt, uh, one of the reasons that when I undertook this, well, I, I noted with surprise that no one had ever gone to France before to do the research in the French archives because that would be the logical approach mm-hmm. to a book on a regiment that fought in the French army. Detached, but uh, that's not unusual in history. Often the things you think that logically should have been written mm-hmm. have not been written, right. and, and that was perfectly fine with us in this case. Yeah. Um, but uh, to note that these sort of conflicts within the white officer corps between the Ivy Leaguers and Hayward, who had gone to the University of Nebraska, Mm -hmm. um, and as well to note that many times when you read the histories of regiments, what you find is they don't give credit to, say, non-commissioned officers Mm -hmm. or enlisted men where it's due many times these histories concentrate on the commissioned officers. As well, another issue with 369th had been the previous concentration of many books on the band, the 15th of your National Mm -hmm. Guard band led by James Reese Europe. Right. And And the only dedicated biography is one of Europe. Of Europe. Um, By uh, Reed Badger. And the difficulty is that many people equated Jim Europe and the band oh, yeah. and the regiment, and they didn't realize, and you could see this in some of yeah. the documents, they never realized that Jim Europe was actually a lieutenant mm-hmm. in the machine gun company mm-hmm. who was gassed and wounded in combat. You will go to the, the Le Historial in Peron, and they have a wonderful exhibit this past summer on music and the war, and the centerpiece of that is the 369th Regimental Band. And it portrays Europe as the great band leader who brings jazz to the world. No mention at all of his other duties. In a sense, uh, history was reversed, and the regiment, uh, of which the band was originally an appendage, is suddenly in a reverse situation, and the regiment almost becomes an appendage of the band in in many of these histories. So we we wanted to set that right. And that Mm -hmm. takes us to... Uh, the title of the book as, as, mm-hmm. as, as well. Uh, we were dedicated to, committed to, not perpetuating myths surrounding uh, the regiment. Right. And one of those, we believe, was indeed connected to 
the name that you know, we all hear in terms of uh, this regiment, and that's Harlem Hellfighters. Um, and the men, as far as we can see, uh, of the combat unit, never called themselves the Hellfighters, mm-hmm. uh, that this is a name that is imposed. They were the Rattlers, not the Black Rattlers, not Harlem Rattlers, but the Rattlers, mm-hmm. uh, based on the you know indigenous American icon and, of course, uh, mm-hmm. and the Gadsden flag, don't tread on right. me. So, um, and quintessentially American uh, icon. And uh, what we did find, however, after the book was published, because I kept coming across things that troubled me in terms of when this Hellfighter name might have started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the band recorded an album under French auspices. Pat, how do you say Pate, it? Yeah. Pate yeah. French. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I evidently was done before they were shipped back home. Mm-hmm. And the album is the Hellfighters band. Uh, so jacket cover, album cover, uh, jacket liner, um, uh, newspaper uh, advertisements, Jim Europe's Hellfighters band. So remember, there's no regiment after the war. Mm -hmm. The most visible sort of representation of the regiment becomes the band, although after Europe is killed, Uh, in May of 1919 by one of his band members. Uh, The band is in serious trouble. Michael, Eugene Michael, takes over, but it only lasts another year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nonetheless, there's this embedding of that uh, name and and association with the regiment through uh, Mm -hmm. the band that that lasts. And of course, it's alliterative, it's, you know, very provocative uh, provocative and and all of that. Uh, So... But in terms of what the men call themselves, Rattlers, the old 15th, the fighting 15th, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Because yeah. tell them, John, about the, the, the designation 369. Well, the 369 designation to a volunteer unit mm-hmm. is an insult. Um, units with numbers over 300 were draftee. The Army assigned draftee regiments. Um, unit numbers over 300. Mm -hmm. And three of the four uh, regiments in the so-called 93rd Provisional Division, parentheses, colored. Mm -hmm. And the division itself never existed. It never came together except on paper. But three of the regiments, the 369th, which was the 15th New York National Guard, the 370th, which was the 8th Illinois uh, National Guard, the 372nd, which was a composite of the National Guards of uh, smaller units from national black National mm-hmm. Guards in several northern states, and then the 371st, which had been a provisional regiment of black South Carolina draftees officered by an entirely white officer corps, mm-hmm. were put together, and then they got these 300 numbers, which was resentful 
Yeah, sure. It's an insult to a volunteer regiment that's come to fight and mm-hmm. uh, been formed on its own. So they never referred to themselves by the numbers 369th. In fact, mm-hmm. the first they knew that they were the 369th was when they arrived in the ranks of the French army after Pétain had taken them away from the AEF. And the French officer that greeted them when they arrived in the French army camp said, uh, Bienvenue. 369th Regiment, 369th Regiment, and they're thinking, where did that number come from? So that's when they learn who they now are, but they never... And the story is they carried a National Guard flag throughout the war. What did the Germans, how did the Germans portray them? I mean, how were they seen by the Germans? Do they have a name for them? Well, that's in an area of, (laughs) of, of, of... Speculation. And Speculation is the end of statement, Jeff. That's, that's nicely put. <laughs> Go ahead. Hayward claims he saw some document in which the Germans uh, referred to the men as Blutlistica Schwarzenmanner. Right? <laughs> Unfortunately, as when I, when Jeff and I were looking at it, I said the first time, those Germans didn't speak very good German. <laughs> Because it would have been Blutlustiger, Schwarzenmänner, and so we cracked. Blutlustiger is really what it should have been. Yeah, so it's it's misspelled. Maybe Haywood wouldn't have known German. Well, he 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 studied in Germany, so he had some kind of elementary. (laughs) Beer hall German, at least. But I think what often happens, and you can observe this in both World Wars One and Two. Uh, it's often attributed, or Americans often attribute to yeah, both the Germans and the Japanese, mm-hmm. uh, these incredible names that they give to not just certain American soldiers, but uh, American fighter planes. Yeah. And uh, so the, the joke I made when I saw the Blutlustige Schwarzenmänner Männer was, I can see some German soldier looking over the line and seeing these guys coming at them, and he takes the time to stand up and say, Ah, I see these lusty, bloodlusty men coming after me. I don't think that's the way they put it. They'd seen African soldiers and fought African soldiers. Oh, sure. I think a lot of that's apocryphal. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, well, there, there does raise issues, too, when you think about, you know, German portrayals of, say, the Herero or other tribesmen. In, in German South Africa, and you know, the legacy of that as well. Why well, I say that that is a big gap in in the in the history. What 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 did the Germans, if they did think about these guys? We do know that Germans dropped leaflets mm-hmm. on uh, African American soldiers. We don't know if it was you know necessarily the the, the 369th or men from the mm-hmm. 93rd. It could have very well been the 92nd Division. Yeah. Uh, and say, why are you fighting uh, mm-hmm. for people who, you know, discriminate against you, et cetera, et cetera. So that did happen. They were certainly aware that there were black Americans who were fighting right. against them. But I went to the archives in Freiburg, uh, and there was nothing there uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the Germans about, uh, you know, African Americans. Uh, and, of course, so much stuff was destroyed oh, yeah. uh, in World War II uh, from you know, World War One. Right. Uh, that it's, it's it's really hard to get a handle. What German? You'd have to look at a bunch of German newspapers as well. Maybe they're saying something. Who knows? Yeah. But we have no evidence whatsoever, firsthand, 
of what the Germans were mm -hmm. were, were thinking and saying about uh, you know our yeah, guys. And, uh, and what I've seen in terms of the Germans noting of fighting African soldiers, um, surprisingly enough, in some of the major memoirs, they really don't appear uh, mm -hmm. that dramatically. Well, Ernst Junger, who was a famous author of the Storm of Steel, did spend most of his time on fighting the English, mm -hmm. but he did comment on fighting African soldiers, and uh, uh, he was not overwhelmed at all by right. the, the nature of it, but uh, in many respects, the French, usually African soldiers, um, as shock troops, right. and beyond that, often the French emphasis that the African soldiers should attack using solely their long knives, mm -hmm. in which the African soldiers resented because, as they pointed out, when they came to clash with German soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Germans had Bowie knives and Lugers, mm -hmm. and here they have just blades so that someone could just, they, could, they would, come, would complain about being shot in the back by German soldiers, and they right. wanted pistols as well. So um, I think the Germans uh, had basically had adjusted quite well to fighting mm -hmm. um, African soldiers. Uh, one thing they did do was after the war, they you know, what's called the Schwarze Schande, the, the black shame. Mm -hmm. They accused uh, African soldiers, West French West African soldiers in uh, the occupied zones right. of raping uh, German women, which was not really, that was very much overplayed. Right. And then at the beginning of the Second World War in 1940, they massacred substantial numbers of black African troops. Mm -hmm in part because the black Africans and the West Africans, uh, the North Africans, raised the greatest resistance. French troops would surrender, but the African soldiers had no place to go. So they fought it to the end. The Germans would bump them off after they were captured. So there is some, uh, but I don't think that we see any of that, that here. Right, right. Well, let's, let's return to before the war. Um, you know, what is the impetus for raising a uh, African-American National Guard regiment. Well, uh, New York has a rather sorry track record on, mm -hmm. on its treatment of blacks, first of all. Right. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, heavily implicated in, in the slave economy mm -hmm. and in slavery itself. Okay. Yeah. Um, at one point, I think in what late, uh, almost the turn of the 19th century, uh, New York had its uh, second highest number of slaves uh, only topped by, uh, in one city, by Charleston. Right. Um, uh, and then, of course, um, uh, New York is, is, is complicit in the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. uh, blacks um, uh, decide that they need to protect themselves, and one of the ways of protecting themselves is to form military organizations. So there's this tradition of black militias uh, in New York from around the 1850s. Right. Generally unofficial or unrecognized right, right. militias. And of course we know that uh, after the passage of the Militia Act in 1862, blacks then begin to organize their three units, uh, the 20th, the 26th, and the 31st, uh, which are sponsored by the Union League Club, mm -hmm. uh, not recognized by New York State, right. but serve in the uh, in the civil 
a war. And of course, in the middle of the war, what do we have? The draft riots. Uh, So there's this concern with uh, safety, but also with reputation uh, uh, and representation uh, of self uh, among uh, uh, blacks. There's the uh, minstrelsy is huge in 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 New York, and the uh, derogation of, of 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 black people on the minstrel stage and the press, uh, from the minstrel to the dangerous uh, coon uh, imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so blacks are trying to find ways in which one they can show themselves to be uh, manly, mm-hmm. disciplined, uh, upright. Uh, but also, at the same time, they want to establish that they are full-fledged citizens. Uh, And one way to establish one's sort of value as an American is through military service. It's very cognizant of the role of the militia in the nation's uh, defense. It's participated in every war that uh, Mm -hmm. the colonies and and, and the United country has has been in. and then the Spanish-American War brings it home again. Uh, they fight for rec- uh, recognition. It's not granted uh, again. Um, so there's simmering a resentment about how blacks are being rejected uh, in military organizations. And we know that the National Guard is also a huge social club, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not about to admit blacks into that fraternity uh, because of all the implications it has for social and, and, and status. political status. Right, too. exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, even on the stage, the minstrel stage, uh, the militia uh, plays a role. There's this uh, fictitious mulligan guard. Um, created by Harrigan and Hart. And the foil to the Mulligan Guard is the Skidmore Guard, an all-black military organization that exists in reality. And it's just the opposite of how it's being represented by uh, Harrigan and Hart. So blacks say we really need to have uh, representation, membership in the National Guard of New York State, or we're not really full-fledged citizens. So... In 1910, uh, there's an organization that's established called the Equity Congress of Greater New York. Uh, It's actually kind of responding to a call by the New York Age and others for more civic activity among uh, blacks and civic organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's against, uh, you know, discrimination and housing and employment uh, but it also seeks representation of blacks on the police force, fire department, but also in the New York National Guard. Mm-hmm. And that is the first super organized uh, effort uh, to establish a black National Guard regiment. Mm-hmm. Someone comes from Ohio via Washington by the name of Charles Ward Fillmore. He, in my opinion, is the most unheralded hero uh, of the regiment. I believe without this man's efforts that the regiment would not have come into existence. So he has military background, Mm -hmm. uh, rose from the rank of private to major in the Ohio uh, National Guard. Is he part of the Wilberforce establishment? No, 
He wasn't. Uh, he was more in the Springfield uh, area and a Republican operative. Okay. Uh, but then he would serve in the um, uh, Spanish-American War in the Colored Immunes, the Ninth Volunteers. Right. Um, and so he had this military. There are some issues that we go into detail about in the book uh, that almost ruined uh, Fillmore's uh, military uh, career, but he survived them, and especially mm-hmm. his service in the Philippines, I think, was helpful to uh, resurrecting uh, him. Uh, and in any event, um, he uh, established a provisional regiment of colored infantry mm-hmm. uh, and believed that by having such an organization on the ground uh, that it would prove to the authorities that blacks, one, wanted this, mm-hmm. uh, and that they were capable of, of leading such an organization, and it deserved to be recognized by the state. Well, as you well know, uh, the National Guard leadership was adamantly opposed to uh, any such organization. It's led, its, it's uh, commander is uh, Major General John F. O'Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, uh, he's absolutely hostile to the prospect of, of, of black membership in the in the National Guard, mm-hmm. uh, except as uh, auxiliaries, in a sense. As right. quartermaster corps, uh, labor uh, battalion, sanitation. Stewards. Right. Okay, et, et, et Acceptable roles right. for African Americans. Right. right. So um, there's also growing political influence on the part of blacks. Uh, in in New York that allows them to start working the system to their minimum disadvantage, I guess, <laughs> as yeah. Hobbsbaum would say, right? Yeah. Um, and they see what has happened in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chicago, in 1878, has a 16th Battalion, which will become the 8th Illinois uh, in the 1890s. Uh, and this becomes the sort of envy of of, of, of black New Yorkers, and not only does it have this regiment, it's officered from the top down by oh, blacks. Yeah, that's right. uh, so this is a, a source of, of, of kind of, uh, you know, humiliation for black New Yorkers that Chicago has yeah. this, and Chicagoans were better at playing the political game than New York. Of course, Chicago didn't have Tammany Hall. Yeah. Uh, and also, the Republicans were not doing anything uh, for blacks, New York or nationally, and the regiment became this political football between Republicans and and Democrats. And one would say, "We're going to do it for you." And so, in any event, uh, after all kinds of uh, you know political pressure, a a law a bill passes the uh, both houses of the state legislature. Governor Salser, a Democrat signs it into law in June of, of, of 1913. It, the regiment was supposed to have been established in 90 days. Uh, Louis Stotesbury, who would become an adjutant general and uh, was on an examination committee for officers in the regiment, later would admit that the National Guard never took the law seriously and had no intention hmm. of honoring it. And what they did was to fail almost every man who came uh, forward to be uh, right. examined. In 1914, 
They declared the experiment a failure and basically washed their hands of the regiment. So it's the election of a Republican, Charles Seymour Whitman, who's a pro-war guy, uh, and there's some serendipity here. Uh, in a couple of years, there's a guy down on the Mexican border giving the United States fits in the person of Pancho Villa. There's the punitive expedition. A lot of New York guards are, guardsmen are called up to go to the border, there's a serious reduction in the ranks of manpower in uh, the New York National Guard. It gives Whitman an opportunity to say, and he has lots of ambition to be more than the governor of New York, sure. uh, that uh, uh, this is the time in which to actually authorize uh, the black regiment. Mm -hmm. So in June of 1916, we have what is the 15th New York National Guard, but there are a lot of ifs and right. ifs. There's a compromise, a bargain that has to be struck with both the New York National Guard and the War Department. Right. First, the commander must be white. And it was Ryan's belief and intent that there would be no black officers mm. in, in, in the regiment. Uh, and then it was never really an organic part of the New York National Guard, which was the 6th Division at the time, New York and Guard would become Division. the 27th, mm -hmm. but it was never brigaded with any other unit. Mm -hmm. It was just out, and when it went to Spartanburg, it did not go with the with the 6th or the 27th. Right. By itself. They were there at the same time, but they weren't together. You also describe as a bit of dissent over whether they should be part of this experiment or not. One of the things that you find, um, and I'm going to Jeff speak to the New York situation, is that there are a couple of divergent paths going on. Mm -hmm. You have this notion that in Des Moines, mm -hmm. there should be a separate and segregated black officers training school. Ultimately, Fort Des Moines. Yeah, um, yeah. at Fort Des Moines. And that will be technically what the 92nd Division will pull from for its officer ranks. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a number of very capable officer types who will flock to Des Moines to join mm -hmm. that. And there's undoubtedly some siphoning off of black talent to the Des Moines school. Unfortunately, most of those men will never see combat because it takes the school so long to operate. Right. And when the the ones that end up in the 92nd Division are treated so badly that it radicalizes many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the 369th, what they end up with is an officer corps of 48 white New Yorkers, many of whom are the science of wealthy New York families like Hamilton Fish, mm -hmm. Jr. Um, there are a number of other folks, uh, Richardson Pratt, uh, who is uh, the heir of one of the folks who Standard oil, oil. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time you've got five African American officers, two captains, Fillmore, Jeff has already mentioned, and Napoleon Bonaparte Marshall, who is a Harvard educated lawyer, mm -hmm. um, and who defended the black soldiers um, after the Brownsville incident. So the main thing is that what the regiment actually exemplifies is something totally contrary to 
what the U.S. Army mm-hmm. believes and what American society believes. If you've got right. two black captains, that means that black and white lieutenants have to take orders. Right. And it is a tenet in the American Army that no white soldier or officer mm-hmm. should ever have to obey a black superior, mm-hmm. which is one reason why uh, Colonel Charles Young, who was the logical commander of a regiment and probably logical commander of a brigade as a brigadier yeah. general, um, was removed and put on the uh, disabled list of medical, for medical reasons uh, because a white lieutenant objected to having to serve under a black officer and uh, Woodrow Wilson supported the white lieutenant. It's likely that Newton Baker, who was the Secretary of War, would have simply ignored burned yeah. the lieutenant and ignored it. Well, that white lieutenant also yeah. had some help from John Sharp Williams, yeah. who's a senator from Mississippi. Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in the end, uh, Young is out of the picture. But uh, one of the things we'll see as the war continues mm-hmm. is that the American Expeditionary Force, which still has administrative control over these black units mm-hmm. will essentially whiten the officer corps in the 369th um, and all the rest except for the 370th, which is the 8th Illinois for Chicago, right. which has so many black officers you can't possibly. But they removed their commander. For medical reasons, yeah. once, right. again. once again. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thing that, uh, Bobby, you asked before, uh, the black regiment presents a dilemma for blacks, um, and that is at a time in which they are trying to become integrated into the society, they often realize that they have to accept segregated institutions, uh, and that's what happens both here with the 369th and also with the Fort Des Moines officer uh, uh, training uh, school. It's just the reality. There is no way that blacks were going right. to be integrated into the New York National Guard. Interesting right. thing, Jews were integrated into the New York National Guard, yeah. but they weren't allowed to establish their own regiment. Hmm. And they also could not become or were not officers pre-war in the New York National Guard. Uh, and so if they had their own regiment, then they would be officers and then they would be socializing with the the wasp and all of that, right? Right. At these cotillions and and uh, whatnot. So it's an interesting twist how they're allowed in but kept at a certain level. Oh, sure. Whereas mm-hmm. blacks are. Plus, know, it's also the dilemma of the assimilation project yeah. or the alleged assimilation project with Eastern Europeans, Italians, and others. That that's a factor. You you raise the issue of Newton Baker. Right, mm-hmm. and of course we know that the War Department has problems. The Army has problems in coming to reconcile. What are we going to do with these combat organizations that are foisted upon us in a sense uh, politically? How do they come to reach this bargain with the French Army to take That's the three sixty nine? What happens is that the Fifteenth New York National Guard encountered difficulties wherever it sought to train in the United States. It was sent to Spartanburg, South Carolina, for two weeks. Perfect choice. As far as the officers and men were concerned, they didn't want to be there. The white citizens of Spartanburg did not want them there. 
They remained for two weeks before Haywood managed to get them out before an explosion similar to what had happened in Houston in August mm -hmm. 1917, where the black soldiers simply went into town and uh, shot a number of people because of the ill treatment they were receiving. And so they end up being shipped out early mm -hmm. to France in mid-December. But not before they had trouble at Camp Mills well, in uh, New York. I was not going to talk about the Camp Mills <laughs> incident. Camp uh, Merritt in, in Tenafly, Englewood uh, area. Well, every and place they go. Yeah, I think they had problems yeah. before. Yeah. These were all uh, cases that right. they were put in the confines with Southern soldiers. Well, well in, not the Yafank one. one. This yeah. was caused by the locals uh, who were yeah. really giving them hell. Uh, and there was a white officer in in, in Merritt who was who was given you know them but real. The incident grief. at Camp Mills was with Alabama, sixty seventh Alabama right. regiment, which had spent its time. Um, I always laugh and love to compare their behavior, which was a completely disruptive and raucous. They had almost come to a replay of the Civil War with the Ohio Regiment when they arrived in Camp Mills. And when the 15th New York arrived in Camp Mills, the Ohioans, according to Hamilton Fish, said they planned to attack you. And so the Ohioans, uh, now that no one had allegedly been issued any ammunition for their weapons, but Fish said that the uh, Ohio Regiment gave them the ammunition <laughs> and uh, the Alabama boys did not attack, but they had a habit of provoking fights mm -hmm. with these other units. And with the 15th New York National Guard, they ran into Kid uh, Cotton, Kid Cotton um, sparring partner for Jack Johnson. <laughs> and they shipped the New York National Guard out very quickly, but Kid Cotton, George Kid Cotton, has this little note to himself saying, too bad we're leaving. I already have two knockouts, and I've got more fights on the card coming up, and I'm going to win them all. So, um, but they can't go anywhere, and so when they're shipped to France early, they arrive on New Year's Day, 1918, mm -hmm. and they are immediately set to work as labor units mm -hmm. uh, in the cold around Saint-Nazaire and Montoir, building uh, this huge base. A number of men die from the flu mm -hmm. uh, and from mumps and so on, and Haywood's trying to get them out of there and writing to Pershing, but fortuitously, General Philippe Pétain, who was the commander of the French Army on the Western Front, is aware that these men have arrived, and he contacts Pershing in January and says, you know, the French Army desperately needs men. Mm -hmm. now, we know that Pershing would not give the French any white soldiers. Right. So that's at an impasse, but Pétain points directly to this new regiment that's arrived, and he also is aware that there are three more of these regiments that are not going to be attached to the 92nd, or subsumed right. under it, that are coming later. And uh, he simply confronts Pershing and says, uh, I'd like for you to give me all four of those regiments. Mm -hmm. Pershing caught in somewhat of a bind because he doesn't want to appear um, too difficult to the French. He's always already caused some right. problems. Um, agrees, and then Pétain on January 11th uh, 
returns a note to him and says, uh, thank you, and we will train them as infantry. Mm-hmm. And that rescues them from actually what would have been um, an assignment to labor duties for the rest of the war yeah. unless they were used as reserves for the 92nd Division. Mm-hmm. Um, they are literally taken into the French Army and mm-hmm. put in the French Army by March, trained and are in the front lines by April <clears throat> before any one of their contemporaries would be. Mm-hmm. And they're actually very happy about this. They yeah. may be alone, but as uh, Lieutenant John Wesley Castles uh, comments, I'd really rather go in with the French because they know what they're doing. They've been at this right. kind of warfare for all these years. The American army will envy us because mm-hmm. we are their first and we have been trained by people who know what right. they're doing. And that's an interesting you know, um, point or comparison to make when people who casually look at the history of American Expeditionary Forces or even of the 369th Regiment, they don't stop to consider about how by serving under French command, they're assimilating the best lessons and the most timely lessons in this new form of warfare that the United States Army is not preparing for. That's, that's absolutely correct. That's the indictment and of And that's Pershing. a very good point, uh, Bobby, because Pershing was determined that the Army should be prepared to fight in open country and uh, basically exalted the aim of the uh, American frontiersmen and all these sorts of things. And um, they're preparing for things like bayonet fighting in the trenches and uh, you don't March use a yeah, you yeah. don't use a bayonet Snipers. in night combat in the trenches. You use a blade and a pistol because yeah. a, a rifle is too difficult yeah. to wield. And um, it's very clear that Pershing was rather off in that notion. And so the advantage is that the 369th, because of its experience as the 15th, is not tainted by any of this. Yeah. So they get to learn how to do trench warfare from as these men that the uh, 369th mm-hmm. came to admire, uh, one uh, fellow who had gone on a trench raid with them said uh, he had met a fellow who had done something like 98 trench raids you know, hmm. at night going over to the German lines to try to capture prisoners, and he just said, well, these men sure can't fight. Yeah. Um, so they were learning from professionals. Oh, yeah. Well, that raises another thing I was going to bring up at the end of the interview. I'll raise it now. How do we assess the 369th compared to other American units in, of, of like size in, in the AEF? Bluntly put, uh, the 369th establishes a record as a regiment that, to our knowledge, is unequaled by any other American regiment in the First World mm-hmm. War. First, they were in the lines for 191 continuous days, which is longer than any other Mm -hmm. regiment. The French kept them in lines, rotating them back to the reserves, but Mm -hmm. uh, they moved between two divisions during that time. Second, they never lost a prisoner to the Germans, which is absolutely incredible because Mm -hmm. there really is no other unit. I've read a lot of units' descriptions. they lose prisoners at the very beginning because the Germans come to get them. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the 369th, when the Germans came to capture uh, prisoners uh, in the early morning of May 15th, uh, 1918, uh, they encountered Henry Johnson 
and Needham Roberts, who essentially sliced, shot, and grenaded them to ribbons. Uh, these two men fought mm -hmm. off a German patrol of 20 to 24 men. Um, got no prisoners in there. Other incidents were case of Sergeant William Butler, mm -hmm. uh, who's lieutenant, and four men are about to be captured by the Germans. Uh, Butler suddenly rises up from his uh, trench with a show-shot submachine gun, mm -hmm. and lieutenant says, everybody drop, and Butler drills five Germans, killing the officer leading them, and then runs off into the German lines in the night throwing grenades and shooting all, he everything. He, he I just ran him. He just <laughs> ran I just ran him up. When he comes back, he's fired all. Yeah, he got that thing with service cross. Deserved more yeah. than that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, did. Exactly. he did. I agree 100% yeah, with up. that. But uh, tell them, John, put that, what Henry and Needham did in the context, because there was a raid in a, 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 by Germans of another... The, the Germans, <laughs> invariably, when they welcomed an American unit to the front lines, mm -hmm. um, would uh, stage a raid in which they would use a, uh, a box barrage and cut the part right. of the unit they want off from the rest of the American lines and then go over in force um, carrying pistols and buoy knives, which was their choice of uh, blade. Mm -hmm. And it's prey and 1917, uh, when they encountered some of the first units of the uh, first division, they pulled that stunt and literally captured um, somewhere around 12 men and sliced up the others, slit the others' throats, and right. left a message on their chest saying, Welcome to the war, Americans. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts are the first two infantry combat heroes of the war on the American side, yeah. period. Yeah, it happened in uh, April. So yeah. It's taking place well, May. in May. It happened in May. Yeah. And right. beyond that, they both, Henry Johnson receives the immediately the uh, Croix de Guerre, the French War Cross, mm -hmm. with Gold Palm, which is the highest award. And to Anita Robbins, he received the, the Palm with mm -hmm. a Silver Cross. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty is that the United States doesn't recognize them at all. But yeah. 171 individuals in the regiment received the Croix de Guerre. Mm -hmm. The entire regiment received the Croix de Guerre. So yeah. I think that speaks to, you know, uh, certainly what the French it, thought. Looking, looking in raw terms of decorations, of yeah. course, and reputation. But then as you're also pointing out as well, just in, in terms of practical experience and accomplishment. Um, I want to... We could talk a long time about the combat narrative, and it's interesting, but there's so much more to this book, and we're running short on time. I want to raise, or get your views, and I know from reading the book, I know, but your views on what is one of the, what is one of the prevailing myths about the treatment of African-American troops by the French in the First World War? You know, most of the narratives that I come across, they portray the French as openly welcoming the 369th and others with no uh, malice, no racist forethought, no, no disrespect at all. But then they are also, there's racism exhibited towards the French Moroccans and the Senegalese and the others. What's the reality that you've uncovered? 
Well, we did find that there were, uh, and John will speak to the famous Lennard Memorandum, uh, but we found a general. It was a color day, I believe, mm-hmm. who who was hostile to blacks as officers. Oh, and no, no, no. You're, you're thinking about um, the commander of the 57th Red Hand, Mariano Goybe, because Colonel Davis is the uh, attache in Washington. Okay, so it's... Mariano Goybe, who was the commander of the French uh, Red Hand Division, mm-hmm. which absorbed two of the black regiments, not the 369th, but right. the, the 371st and 372nd, but mm-hmm. was very hostile, as Jeff said, to... And, and, and degrade, uh, demeaned the, the black officers. And we weren't sure exactly whether this was his view or whether he was also like Lenard. Uh, sort of trying to ingratiate himself with the, you know, sort of his American supporters. Right. Uh, and, and there was this great concern among the French of doing anything to offend uh, the AEF right. uh, because it needed them so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and what that leads to is, as we pointed out, after the 369th has been eminently successful, and you have the other three regiments now moved into the line, this is in August, as integral parts of French divisions, yeah. then the AEF first decides to try to whiten their office accord, which will create problems. Mm-hmm. But secondly, and more crucially, the AEF demands them back. Hmm. They want the three regiments back, and as Pershing writes them, they want them back so that they can use these four combat regiments in the French army as labor troops. And what that elicits after Lenard, the colonel who is the chief of the French military mission at AEF headquarters, writes this memorandum trying to tell French officers to tell everyone to stop treating black men equally and especially stop letting them be seen in public with French women because that really upsets the Americans, the yeah. white Americans who are absolutely convinced that African Americans are inferior and they must be segregated and it just gives them ideas. But when it comes to the crunch time, that's when uh, Commander-in-Chief, Ally Commander-in-Chief Ferdinand Foch simply writes to Pershing quite curtly, um, it will be a tremendous inconvenience for me to have to disband two French line divisions just so that you can have labor troops. So we'll be keeping them, and they kept them until December 12th after the war when they returned to the U.S. Army. The, the other thing is, Bobby, that, that uh, the French see these black Americans as cosmopolitan. Right. Uh, and Much different than they would see the, their own but not only French that, Africans. You're talking about these guys are much more educated and much more, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, Worldly mm-hmm. than the French soldiers. Mm-hmm. These are peasants, right? So, so there's something very important uh, yeah. about uh, these men, and especially coming from many from New York City. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and the other distinction the French, <clears throat> and the French general actually makes it initially, the Gales says, you know, these are not savages from Central Africa, they're from most civilized city in the world. Mm-hmm. But the other point, obviously the most civilized next to Paris, but, um, <laughs> the, but at the same time, um, the French do have some concerns um, about, and we've described, they have, the French 
Senegalese tirailleurs, the French Senegalese infantry that come from the interior mainly, are going to be used as colonial troops. But there are five to 6,000 black Senegalese who live in the four urban communes mm-hmm. in Senegal, uh, like Dakar and Lufisk and San Louis and Gore. Um, and they will be directly integrated into the French Metropolitan Army. So they serve in this predominantly white army right. uh, and will acquire French citizenship mm-hmm. as a result of their service, whereas the majority of Senegalese tirailleur will be shipped right back to Africa at the end of the war. So it, the, the French have racial distinctions, yes. um, and certainly there are reservations about making uh, blacks of any sort offices, the question of education. But at the same time, what you see with the French is that they make these efforts, say, to keep the Senegalese tirailleur separate from French society and French women, but the efforts are completely porous because yeah. these guys circulate out. But the American army is rabid about its racism. It mm-hmm. does not want anything like that happening. And what you see is this incredible distinction between, you know, the French do accept the African-American soldiers mm-hmm. very well, uh, and the AEF is determined even if they're accepted, once they get these men back, they won't, they beat them oh, they yeah. back oh, yeah. to submission, uh, including the white and officers. That's the question, the idea yeah. of submission yeah. And, yeah. And, and, exactly. and subordination. Yeah. Black officers could not travel with white officers mm-hmm. returning to the United States. Uh, the 369th is segregated at Camp Upton, mm-hmm. uh, Long Island Sound. Yeah. Uh, the War Department did not want the regiment to have a parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, only the intervention of uh, some blacks uh, who had friends right. at the Rocky Mountain Club right. uh, uh, were able to convince Jervy to allow them to march. They said, okay, we'll let the original 15th march. But no, you know, all these men they fought. Uh, and uh, so it happened. Uh, and But but uh, not without... Uh, uh, incredible difficulty. And once again, mm-hmm. there were some critics who said, why aren't they marching with the 27th Division? Why are they marching on their own? Yeah. Others felt that it, it you know, was their day, it was better, but the disparity between uh, the, the level of the, you know, perks and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, planning for the, for the 27th Division, uh, you know, showed how separate mm-hmm. was not equal. As we come to the end of this, um, leaving aside our combat narrative again, which we've already we've already introduced mm-hmm. earlier, what would you both say is the legacy of the experience of the 369th Infantry Regiment? I would suggest that um, this comes sort of via my father, yeah. um, who was born in 1910, mm-hmm. grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey, and told me about the, uh, since he was seven, about the young men who had gone to volunteer for the 369th in New York City, some of whom had returned and some of whom had not, and were buried in France. And uh, the other thing that I remember his telling me was about Colonel Young's 
ride oh, yeah. from Ohio to Washington to prove that he was fit yeah. to command. And that did not work out, but it was very clear to me, and uh, my father was too old to serve in World War II, but his younger brother volunteered in 1940 because he wasn't going to miss the, the big war. Yeah. And uh, I think the legacy uh, has long existed, at least in uh, certain regions, probably the Northeast, in the black community. Mm -hmm. uh, we were aware of this because yeah. I'd heard of these men growing up, and that was one of the things that the other, you know, of course, the Tuskegee Airmen that everyone knows about. Yeah. But um, when Jeff approached me about the 369th, um, I didn't hesitate because in some respects, um, I think we both feel this way. There was, there was a powerful obligation mm -hmm. that we felt um, to do justice to these men who had been willing to die uh, to get equal citizenship in the United States, even if things had not worked out. And I think one of the lessons that African Americans learned, and it's part of the, we see it in the new wave of books on the long civil rights movement, mm -hmm. is that it really begins in 19, in 1914-18 yeah. war, when everything is thwarted. But when World War II comes around, um, mm -hmm. I think there are a number of both African Americans and a small number of white people who are now prepared to stand up and say segregation is wrong. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's well, a long, difficult process. Yeah, I would say that, that, that World War One gets short shrift as a war that mm -hmm. didn't accomplish its In the, aim. In the American right. story. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it also uh, uh, gets short shrift in, in, in sort of the black uh, uh, freedom struggle, mm -hmm. uh, that this is a war in which we gave blindly and received absolutely nothing in return. Yeah. This war was transformative, not only for the men who served, but for black people mm -hmm. at large. Yeah. Uh, and what they saw, what they did, what they saw, uh, what they read, uh, could not be taken back. Uh, the genie was out of the bottle. They knew how they had performed in that war. They knew what that war meant. And what Pickens says about, you know, a black presence... Uh, as a modern force on an international stage, is is there, you know, in World War uh, One? David Levering Lewis says that parade in 1919 heralded the new Negro. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think that that's an important takeaway. That that and there's we have to look at the civil rights movement in terms of the long durée and, yes. and, and continu continuity, mm -hmm. uh, and that. What happened in World War II did not just come out of nowhere. Right. It, 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 it had its roots in uh, the way black people had uh, been transformed by uh, World War I. also like to point out, too, that one of the things that we do, first of all, is we have a list of all the men who were killed yes. in the regiment. No other book on the subject has that. But to the extent possible, we try to follow what happens to some really important players in the war, and mm -hmm. particularly Needham Roberts and Henry Johnson. Yes. Both very tragic stories, yeah. very tragic endings in very different uh, uh, ways. And in many ways, there's, they're unique, but they're also representative of what happened to the black soldier after mm -hmm. the war. Just so happened that they were, you know, so high and their fall was so far. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, but for all that, white society seemed to take a great deal of glee in And I think the other thing for the African-American soldier who did go abroad to Europe, mm-hmm. um, some of those who were officers actually would return to France after the war yeah. uh, because they had noted an equality and experienced inequality there or the potential of it that they did right. not see in the United States. And I think what you find is that is an eye-opener and uh, in talking with some veterans of World War II, men who came from the Deep South, and, uh, one fellow who ended up in the Pacific in a labor battalion and was in Australia, and, and he mentioned that, you know, the white people in Australia treated black folks as if they were human beings. Yeah. And when I just pushed it and said, well, would you have gotten that treatment in Louisiana? He said, no. He said, the women treated us pleasantly. Everybody was very nice to us. And they experienced this in England as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first sense that someone could have that there's a wider world out there where we are not demeaned and mm-hmm. denigrated and yeah. lynched. And, yeah. and so on. I think that, that's very important. Um, yeah. Black psyche. This has been a great interview. Um, I want to close with our customary last questions. Uh, first, for both of you, what are you reading now? If, if you're looking, if there's anything that's on your bookshelf or by your bedstand that uh, you think is interesting and worth sharing, um, I finally read Paths of Glory, Humphrey Cobb's <laughs> uh, Paths of Glory, which you know I I've, I've taught through the film yeah, and yeah. finally read the. Uh, the novel and what a you know what a you know fantastic uh, uh, work that deserves a lot more credit than it's given. But uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to say, Bobby, is that we're we're still learning. You know, as big as that book is, uh, this subject is so uh, you know uh, deep and complex that that uh, even that book can't uh, do it justice. Um, you know, learning things, of, like I said, about, you know, the nickname uh, or about uh, the Skidmore Guard and uh, hope to explore that more. But m- my next project, and I also have, have done more on Baldo Sheeta, that, you know, uh, rather um, mysterious uh, uh, <laughs> Everyone, figure. you have to buy the book right, for right, that one. Yes, uh, in, in, in the book and a little more of the Canadian connection and how other blacks might have used Canada to establish themselves as soldiers uh, in, a, in, a, in a fictional way to build up their social capital. I'm going back to my first love and my comfort zone, and, and that is the uh, sport uh, yeah. history. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to use a, a pioneering uh, black golfer, uh, black golf professional uh, who was born in 1888, died in 1979, and had over 50 years of experience with uh, with the game, mm-hmm. and of course witnessed all these incredible uh, developments in race relations uh, in the country from Plessy to Brown uh, and, and, and beyond. So uh, that's the next project. I don't know if I'll eventually go back to Valdo Sheeta and, and try to uh, figure him out. But uh, in any event, I've, I've got a, a full plate. That sounds good. John? 
Uh, well, Bobby, I think at this point in time, um, I'm in the process of decompressing, and the way I decompress <laughs> is to read as much history as I can, but um, I had begun uh, history of the Second World War yeah. uh, when um, Jeff approached me with this, and this basically took precedence. Sure. Um, I'm back to reading on the Second World War again, uh, and I guess... Interestingly enough, I've read a couple of books on um, the Normandy invasion, mm -hmm. the invasion of Western Europe, but not from the American triumphalist perspective, but from the Europeans. Right. Uh, but I also finished a very fascinating book. Um, forget the fellow's first name is uh, Evans, uh, but it's is no Kershaw. It's either, maybe Kershaw. It's either John. It's not Alex, but Ian Kershaw. It's, but it's a uh, it's. Uh, a Street in Arnhem. Yeah. It's about um, the battle in Market Garden when they dropped the British paratroopers too far into Arnhem. Right. Uh, it's going to be a failed uh, assault, but it's done from the German uh, SS perspective, the British paratroopers' perspective, and the Dutch citizens who are caught there. And it's absolutely riveting. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm doing a lot of reading. Um, Ever ranging from political to culture, and uh, leavening it with some you know, straight combat sure. uh, narrative on this, and I found that interesting because it basically boils down to uh, a fight to the death. Because the British paratroopers are not interested in yielding to the Germans, and the Germans are not going to give an inch, and the Dutch are caught in between. Yeah. And it's um, brutal. It's a brutal yeah. fight. Yeah. Well, John, Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you. Our pleasure. Once thank again. you for yeah, inviting us. It's been great. For everybody, this is Bob Wintermute again, and I'm signing off for New Books in Military History. Thank you all for listening.